Section 20 of A Theological-Political Treatise by Baruch Benedict de Spinoza Translated by Robert Harvey Monroe Elvis This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Chapter 18 From the Commonwealth of the Hebrews and their History, Certain Political Doctrines are Deduced Although the Commonwealth of the Hebrews, as we have conceived it, might have lasted forever, it would be impossible to imitate it at the present day, nor would it be advisable to do so. If a people wished to transfer their rights to God, it would be necessary to make an express covenant with Him, and for this would be needed not only the consent of those transferring their rights, but also the consent of God. God, however, has revealed through His apostles that the covenant of God is no longer written in ink or on tables of stone, but with the Spirit of God in the fleshy tables of the heart. Furthermore, such a form of government would only be available for those who desire to have no foreign relations, but to shut themselves up within their own frontiers and to live apart from the rest of the world. It would be useless to men who must have dealings with other nations, so that the cases where it could be adopted are very few indeed. Nevertheless, though it could not be copied in its entirety, it possessed many excellent features which might be brought to our notice and perhaps imitated with advantage. My intention, however, is not to write a treatise on forms of government, so I will pass over most of such points in silence, and will only touch on those which bear upon my purpose. God's kingdom is not infringed upon by the choice of an earthly ruler endowed with sovereign rights, for after the Hebrews had transferred their rights to God, they conferred the sovereign right of ruling on Moses, investing him with the sole power of instituting and abrogating laws in the name of God, of choosing priests, of judging, of teaching, of punishing, in fact, all the prerogatives of an absolute monarch. Again, though, the priests were interpreters of the laws. They had no power to judge the citizens or to excommunicate anyone. This could only be done by the judges and chiefs chosen from among the people. A consideration of the successes and the histories of the Hebrews will bring to light other considerations worthy of note. To wit, one, that there were no religious sects till after the high priests in the second commonwealth possessed the authority to make decrees and transact the business of government. In order that such authority might last forever, the high priests usurped the rights of secular rulers and at last wished to be styled kings. The reason for this is ready to hand. In the first commonwealth no decree could bear the name of the high priest, for he had no right to ordain laws but only to give the answers of God to questions asked by the captains or the councils. He had, therefore, no motive for making changes in the law, but took care, on the contrary, to administer and guard what had already been received and accepted. His only means of preserving his freedom and safety against the will of the captains lay in cherishing the law intact. After the high priests had assumed the power of carrying on the government and added the rights of secular rulers to those they already possessed, each one began, both in things religious and in things secular, to seek for the glorification of his own name, settling everything by sacerdotal authority and issuing every day concerning ceremonies, faith and all else, new decrees which he sought to make as sacred and authoritative as the laws of Moses. Religion thus sank into a degrading superstition, while the true meaning and interpretation of the laws became corrupted. Furthermore, while the high priests were paving their way to the secular rule just after the restoration, they attempted to gain popular favor by assenting to every demand, approving whatever the people did, however impious, 
and accommodating scripture to the very depraved current morals. Malachi bears witness to this in no measured terms. He chides the priests of his time as despisers of the name of God, and then goes on with his invective as follows, Malachi chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. He further accuses them of interpreting the laws according to their own pleasure, and paying no respect to God, but only to persons. It is certain that the high priests were never so cautious in their conduct as to escape the remark of the more shrewd among the people, for the latter were at length emboldened to assert that no laws ought to be kept save those that were written, and that the decrees which the Pharisees, consisting, as Josephus says in his Antiquities, chiefly of the common people, were deceived into calling the traditions of the fathers should not be observed at all. However this may be, we can in no wise doubt that flattery of the high priest, the corruption of religion and the laws, and the enormous increase of the extent of the last name, gave a very great and frequent occasion for disputes and altercations impossible to allay. When men begin to quarrel with all the ardour of superstition, and the magistracy to back up one side or the other, they can never come to a compromise, but are bound to split into sects. It is worthy of remark that the prophets who were in a private station of life rather irritated than reformed mankind by their freedom of warning, rebuke, and censure, whereas the kings, by their reproofs and punishments, could always produce an effect. The prophets were often intolerable even to pious kings, on account of the authority they assumed for judging whether an action was right or wrong, or for reproving the kings themselves if they dared to transact any business, whether public or private, without a prophetic sanctum. King Asa, who, according to the testimony of Scripture, reigned piously, put the prophet Hanani into a prison-house because he had ventured freely to chide and reprove him for entering into a covenant with the king of Armenia. Other examples might be cited, tending to prove that a religion gained more harm than good by such freedom, not to speak of the further consequence that, if the prophets had retained their rights, great civil wars would have resulted. 3. It is remarkable that during all the period during which the people held the reins of power, there was only one civil war, and that one was completely extinguished, the conquerors taking such pity on the conquered, that they endeavoured in every way to reinstate them in their former dignity and power. But after that the people, little accustomed to kings, changed its first form of government into a monarchy, civil war raged almost continuously, and battles were so fierce as to exceed all others recorded. In one engagement, taxing our faith to the utmost, five hundred thousand Israelites were slaughtered by the men of Judah, and in another, the Israelites slew great numbers of men of Judah. The figures are not given in Scripture, almost razed to the ground the walls of Jerusalem, and sacked the temple in their unbridled fury. At length, laden with the spoils of their brethren, satiated with blood, they took hostages, and leaving the king in his well-nigh devastated kingdom, laid down their arms, relying on the weakness rather than the good faith of their foes. A few years after, the men of Judah, with recruited strength, again took the field, but were a second time beaten by the Israelites, and slain to the number of a hundred and twenty thousand. Two hundred thousand of their wives and children were led into captivity, and a great booty again seized. Worn out with these and similar battles set forth at length in their histories, 
the Jews at length fell a prey to their enemies. Furthermore, if we reckon up the times during which peace prevailed under each form of government, we shall find a great discrepancy. Before the monarchy, forty years and more often passed, and once eighty years, an almost unparalleled period, without any war, foreign or civil. After the kings acquired sovereign power, the fighting was no longer for peace and liberty, but for glory. Accordingly, we find that they all, with the exception of Solomon, whose virtue and wisdom would be better displayed in peace than in war, waged war, and finally a fatal desire for power gained ground, which in many cases made the path to the throne a bloody one. Lastly, the laws during the rule of the people remained uncorrupted and were studiously observed. Before the monarchy, there were very few prophets to admonish the people. But after the establishment of kings, there were a great number at the same time. Obadiah saved a hundred from death and hid them away, lest they should be slain with the rest. The people, so far as we can see, were never deceived by false prophets till after the power had been vested in kings, whose creatures many of the prophets were. Again, the people whose heart was generally proud or humble, according to its circumstances, easily corrected itself under misfortune, turned again to God, restored his laws, and so freed itself from all peril. But the kings whose hearts were always equally puffed up, and who could not be corrected without humiliation, clung pertinaciously to their vices, even till the last overthrow of the city. We may now clearly see from what I have said, one, how hurtful to religion and the state is the concession to ministers of religion of any power of issuing decrees or transacting the business of government. How, on the contrary, far greater stability is afforded if the said ministers are only allowed to give answers to questions duly put to them and are, as a rule, obliged to preach and practice the received and accepted doctrines. 2. How dangerous it is to refer to divine right matters merely speculative and subject or liable to dispute. The most tyrannical governments are those which make crimes of opinions, for every one has an inalienable right over his thoughts, nay, such a state of things leads to the rule of popular passion. Pontius Pilate made concession to the passion of the Pharisees in consenting to the crucifixion of Christ, whom he knew to be innocent. Again, the Pharisees, in order to shake the position of men richer than themselves, began to set on foot questions of religion and accused the Sadducees of impiety, and, following their example, the vilest hypocrites, stirred as they pretended, by the same holy wrath which they called zeal for the Lord, persecuted men whose unblemished character and distinguished virtue had excited the popular hatred, publicly denounced their opinions, and inflamed the fierce passions of the people against them. This wanton license, being cloaked with a specious garb of religion, could not easily be repressed, especially when the sovereign authorities introduced a sect of which they were not the head. They were then regarded not as interpreters of divine right, but as sectarians, that is, as persons recognizing the right of divine interpretation assumed by the leaders of the sect. The authority of the magistrates thus became of little account in such matters in comparison with the authority of sectarian leaders, before whose interpretations kings were obliged to bow. To avoid such evils in a state, there is no safer way than to make piety and religion to consist in acts only, that is, in the practice of justice and charity, leaving everyone's judgment in other respects free. But I will speak of this more at length presently. 3. We see how necessary it is, both in the interests of the state and the interests of religion, to confer on the sovereign power the right of deciding what is lawful or the reverse. If this right of judging actions could not be given to the very prophets of God, 
without great injury to the state and religion, how much less should it be entrusted to those who can neither foretell the future nor work miracles? But this again I will treat of more fully hereafter. For, lastly, we see how disastrous it is for a people unaccustomed to kings and possessing a complete code of laws to set up a monarchy. Neither can the subjects brook such a sway, nor the royal authority submit to laws and popular rights set up by any one inferior to itself. Still less can a king be expected to defend such laws, for they were not framed to support his dominion, but the dominion of the people, or some council which formerly ruled, so that, in guarding the popular rights, the king would seem to be a slave rather than a master. The representative of a new monarchy will employ all his zeal in attempting to frame new laws, so as to wrest the rights of dominion to his own use, and to reduce the people till they find it easier to increase than to curtail the royal prerogative. I must not, however, omit to state that it is no less dangerous to remove a monarch, though he is on all hands admitted to be a tyrant. For his people are accustomed to royal authority, and will obey no other, despising and mocking at any less august control. It is therefore necessary, as the prophets discovered of old, if one king be removed, that he should be replaced by another, who will be a tyrant from necessity rather than choice. For how will he be able to endure the sight of the hands of the citizens reeking with royal blood, and to rejoice in their regicide as a glorious exploit? Was not the deed perpetrated as an example and warning for himself? If he really wishes to be king, and not to acknowledge the people as the judge of kings and the master of himself, or to wield a precarious sway, he must avenge the death of his predecessor, making an example for his own sake, lest the people should venture to repeat a similar crime. He will not, however, be able easily to avenge the death of the tyrant by the slaughter of citizens unless he defends the cause of tyranny and approves the deeds of his predecessor, thus following in his footstep. Hence it comes to pass that people have often changed their tyrants, but never removed them or changed the monarchical form of government into any other. The English people furnish us with a terrible example of this fact. They sought how to depose their monarch under the forms of law, but when he had been removed, they were utterly unable to change the form of government, and after much bloodshed only brought it about, that a new monarch should be hailed under a different name, as though it had been a mere question of names. This new monarch could only consolidate his power by completely destroying the royal stock, putting to death the king's friends, real or supposed, and disturbing with war the peace which might encourage discontent, in order that the populace might be engrossed with novelties and divert its mind from brooding over the slaughter of the king. At last, however, the people reflected that it had accomplished nothing for the good of the country, beyond violating the rights of the lawful king and changing everything for the worse. It therefore decided to retrace its step as soon as possible, and never rested till it had seen a complete restoration of the original state of affairs. It may perhaps be objected that the Roman people was easily able to remove its tyrants, but I gather from its history a strong confirmation of my contention. Though the Roman people was much more than ordinarily capable of removing their tyrants and changing their forms of government, inasmuch as it held in its own hands the power of eliciting its king and its successor, and being composed of rebels and criminals had not long been used to the royal yoke, out of its six kings it had put to death three. Nevertheless, it could accomplish nothing beyond electing several tyrants in place of one, who kept it groaning under a continual state of war, both foreign and civil, till at last it changed its government again to a form differing from monarchy, as in England, only in name. 
as for the united states of the netherlands they have never as we know had a king but only counts who never attained the full rights of dominion the states of the netherlands evidently acted as principals in the settlement made by them at the time of the earl of leicester's mission they always reserve for themselves the authority to keep the counts up to their duties and the power to preserve this authority and the liberty of their citizens they had ample means of vindicating their rights if their rulers should prove tyrannical and could impose such restraints that nothing could be done without their consent and approval thus the rights of sovereign power have always been vested in the states though the last count endeavoured to usurp them it is therefore little likely that the states should give them up especially as they have just restored their original dominion lately almost lost these examples then confirm us in our belief that every dominion should retain its original form and indeed cannot change it without danger of the utter ruin of the whole state such are the points i have here thought worthy of remark end of section twenty read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama